Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, Byron Callen of Capital Alpha Partners with a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. But first, joining me now is Sam Bendett of the Center for Naval Analyses. He is also a fellow at the Center for a New American Security and the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He's part of CNA's Crack Russia team and one of the world's leading experts on the Russian military uh, and unmanned systems. Uh, Sam, uh, it's always a pleasure having you on the program. Hope you had a great weekend. Thank you, Vago. Great to be back. Uh, Absolute pleasure. Before we get started, a quick word from our sponsor. HII is a trusted defense and technologies partner supporting all services in all domains and the only builder of nuclear powered aircraft carriers, HII delivering the advantage. Uh, Sam, uh, as I said, welcome uh, back. And uh, every single time folks think uh, that Ukraine is on the ropes, Ukraine demonstrates that it has uh, still, it still has some fight and it still has some uh, powerful uh, punch. Uh, and we saw that demonstrated over the past couple of days with an attack, uh, another attack on uh, the Black Sea's uh, fleet, uh, Russia's Black Sea fleet, uh, I believe uh, damaging, if not sinking, two uh, corvettes. Tell us a little bit about the attack uh, and how the Ukrainians managed to execute it. Indeed, Ukrainian military and society are proving more and more resilient with each day, and they're not bowing to the pressure. Uh, Russian Black Sea Fleet has learned a lot of bitter lessons from previous attacks by unmanned surface vessels that Ukraine launched. But uh, it's still very difficult to interdict such attacks. After all, the USVs that strike Russian ships are relatively small, and they can't always be um, identified early on. And destroyed early on and so ukraine managed to damage and um and inflict significant um significant damage on several uh russian naval vessels uh, russians themselves are saying that there really is no better defense against such weapons than a sailor with a large caliber machine gun so unless every vessel unless every russian vessel is equipped uh, with such machine guns uh, uh, ukraine will continue to strike and uh, it will continue to inflict damage on the Russian fleet. Once again, a fleet uh, that is stationary is a lot more vulnerable than a fleet on the move. And Ukrainians are taking advantage of that. And so there's a lot of uh, technical developments which are taking place within the Ukrainian military and the private sector. They are continuing to refine and modernize their un- unmanned surface vessels uh, to make them even more successful against uh, Russian attacks. Um, and, um, excuse me, not against Russian attacks, but against Russian ships. Uh, there was even an article this morning how, um, that basically described that, uh, Ukraine is managing to keep the Russian fleet at bay with its, uh, drones, with its missiles. And the world is watching. Uh, this is, this is, this is definitely, uh, where a lot of technological investments will take place once this war concludes one way or another. And uh, a lot of investments world over will be in different types of unmanned vessels and systems, as well as different types of missiles and drones. Uh, After all, Ukraine did attack Russian fleet and uh, the Crimean Peninsula in general, not just with USVs, but also with UAVs. In fact, Russian telegram channels and Russian state media are constantly complaining how Ukraine continues to uh, strike um, the Crimea Peninsula with UAVs. So... The attack was successful. It is 
going, such attacks are going to continue. It isn't the last such strike. Russians know it, but apparently there's little they can do about it. After all, using such USVs against large naval vessels really places the pressure on the defender. And the cost of the strike is completely asymmetrical in favor of the attacker, which is why Ukraine will continue to field such USVs and it will continue to go after the Russian ships. Um, So explain, though, a little bit about how the Ukrainians are managing to do this without being detected, right? I mean, we think uh, sea surface radar is going to spot stuff like this that are going to come, uh, that are coming at you to give you some added detection ranges. Um, the Ukrainians are not directly next to some of these facilities. It's a pretty long uh, journey, uh, even if, you know, they're using, you know, a whole bunch of craft in order to launch manned raids. Stuff like this, you would think, is interceptable by something other than you know, a guy with a 12.7 on the deck or something. How, how are the Ukrainians managing to strike that far with systems that would seem to be more detectable? Well, uh, these USVs, and Ukraine has multiple models, are designed to travel for several hundred kilometers. And they're using Starlink to navigate. And so this type of, um, this type of technology, uh, I'm talking about a USV, it isn't very large. It doesn't stick very uh, high from the water. So it's relatively difficult to spot visually and using other uh, systems. In fact, a lot of times Russian Navy is able to interdict these vessels when they're actually at port or near port or even near ships themselves. So USVs are definitely an advantage because they cannot be um, sighted right away. They cannot be identified right away. And uh, they can navigate for very long distances against Russian assets, either in port or at sea. And uh, Ukrainian USVs did strike Russian ships at sea as well. So this kind of creates um, a very significant deterrent against uh, the Russian Navy and places large swaths of the Black Sea basically out of range and um, and out of range of the Russian Navy and makes uh, large swaths of the Black Sea basically um, unavailable to the Russian uh, surface fleet, at least. We haven't seen any significant action by Russian submarines. Ukrainians even managed to damage uh, a Russian submarine with its missiles. So once again, I think Russia is still trying to figure out how to manage this threat. Right now, it seems to be content by putting a lot of defenses around Sevastopol, and around other parts of the Black Sea where Russian fleet is stationed. But again, um, that means such Ukrainian attacks can be interdicted only when they are in the immediate immediate vicinity of the port and within the immediate vicinity of the targets, which makes it possible for some of these USVs to slip through and strike and damage or even sink uh, the Russian vessels. Um, what uh, the Russians always, uh, you know, for a long period of time, every other day almost, was a large barrage uh, of both uh, Shahed drones as well as uh, cruise missile attacks. There was a lull, and the Russians are now kind of getting back uh, into the long-range uh, strike game. What does that tell us, Sam, about what to expect, right? Russia has transferred to a war economy. The Shahid, bring us up to speed on all the capabilities the Russians have been 
developing. The Landsat system has more range, for example, than the switchblade, which the Ukrainians are using. So the Russians are using faster UAVs, slightly longer range to try to change the battlefield dynamic, as well as sort of the deep strike dynamic as they rebuild their weapon stocks and are likely to target uh, or, or, or increase targeting of Ukrainian energy infrastructure, for example, as they did last year, right? Plunge Ukrainians into darkness and cold uh, and, and see whether or not that will break uh, the will. What do you see in the Russians sort of fielding now that tells us what's to come, whether on the battlefield or in the, in the deep battle? Well, uh, there were definitely a lot of improvements in uh, Russian putting munitions capabilities and some of these long range drones. So Russians are working to improve the Shahed drone to make it less susceptible to air defenses. Russians are improving ranges for Landsat loading munitions. There are uh, strikes that were conducted, I think, at a distance between 70 to 100 kilometers even. Russians are fielding next iterations and next generations of loading munitions, such as um, Italmas, which uh, it basically flies up to 200 kilometers or even more. Uh, so there's definitely a move within the Russian defense industry to take advantage of the lessons learned so far and to strike Ukraine safely uh, from behind the lines so that uh, these assets, whether they're drones or missiles, can fly for hundreds of kilometers. They could be launched safely from Russian territory far out of range of uh, Ukrainian missile or counter-battery capabilities. We're going to see more strikes on the Ukrainian energy infrastructure as before. Now, the Ukrainian society didn't buckle, it didn't bend, and the will wasn't broken, even when Russian missile and drone strikes were targeting energy infrastructure last winter. Um, perhaps Russians have learned something from that as well, and maybe they will try something different this time, but they will continue to go after civilian assets, again, to place a lot of pressure on the Ukrainian government and on the civilian population so that they can bear the brunt of the damage and uh, they can bear the costs of such strikes. Um, let me uh, ask you uh, about uh, the revelation that Ukraine uh, or Ukrainians may have been behind uh, the attack on the Nord Stream uh, pipeline that was attributed uh, to the Russians, but uh, or was suspected the Russians did it from very early on. There was some speculation that the Ukrainians might have been behind it. And it looks like the Washington Post is reporting that it uh, may have been a Ukrainian attack uh, and a very sophisticated Ukrainian attack. And Ukraine is time and again demonstrating whether it was with the Dugina assassination, uh, right? It was aimed at Dugin and managed to uh, kill his uh, daughter uh, last year. Walk us through these ever more ambitious Ukrainian special operations, uh, right? So as much as unmanned systems are striking Crimea, the Ukrainians are managing to land troops that are actually uh, sowing some chaos, uh, you know, in, in Crimea and, and elsewhere. Talk to us about how the Ukrainians are using these kinds of capabilities and what it messages to, to Russia and, and the world really about its capabilities. Well, it boils down to the fact that Ukraine has long pledged that it will bring war to Russian territory, just like Russia brought the war to the Ukrainian territory. And so long-range drone strikes against Russian military bases, long-range drone strikes against Moscow, other similar attacks are all meant to drive home the point that Russian economy, Russian industry, Russian society will likewise feel this war the way Ukrainian society and uh, Ukraine in general did uh, feel the cost of war this entire time. Um, and so this is where strikes on 
Russian energy infrastructure come in. And so it shouldn't be very surprising that Ukraine was um, uh, was conducting different types of operations, including attacks on the Nord Stream, as the as the as the public revelations reveal right now. The whole point is to put a lot of pressure on the Russian economy and on the Russian society and the Russian industry. What we're seeing, unfortunately, is that Russian industry and uh, even Russian society have proven very resilient in the face of this uh, military campaign, just like Ukrainian society and the Ukrainian industry had to adapt as well in the face of the ongoing Russian onslaught. So how long can um, Russians tolerate such strikes before they respond in any significant capacity remains to be seen. But going after key Russian energy infrastructure is very high on the Ukrainian agenda right now. And this was demonstrated earlier by long-range strikes utilizing drones on some of the Russian oil facilities. And now Ukrainians are really going for the jugular. So we'll have to see what effect this will actually have long-term. Let me ask you one last uh, question. Uh, There's always a debate about what uh, next uh, Ukraine uh, needs. Uh, As we discussed, uh, Zaluzhny, uh, the commander of Ukrainian forces, uh, in an uh, interview with The Economist said, it's not that we're not thankful, but we needed a TACMS a lot earlier or JETS a lot earlier uh, to capitalize and, and use advantage. Uh, and that uh, now, you know, barring leap ahead capabilities, uh, we might be looking at a stalemate. Um, all allies and partners are looking at what else Ukraine needs next. Uh, we've, we're furnishing them with jets. We're furnishing them with long range missiles. Uh, cluster munitions, artillery shells. What's the next generation of capability do you think the Ukrainians need? Well, it's interesting that Zaluzhny in his interview was talking about technologies and systems and weapons that can breach Russian positions. So he was talking about unmanned systems. He was talking about unmanned ground vehicles that can go against uh, Russian fortifications. All of this used uh, together in a combined uh, force with aircraft and missiles, and of course, electronic warfare and counter UAS systems. He was actually placing a lot of emphasis on different types of counter UAV technologies, because as we have discussed for many, many weeks at this point, both sides are now using thousands and thousands of different types of light tactical drones, which have proven very capable and very dangerous to either side. So it is a combination of factor. It isn't one single technology. It is a combination of technologies. And Zaluzhny kind of put his finger on that pulse in his interview. Do you do you think that any one of those in particular is more important than any other at this point? No, because in each terms has of its helping o- them. Well, each has its own purpose, right? Uh, FPV right. drones and quadcopters are operating at the tactical edge, but uh, Ukraine needs uh, weapons and systems that can strike beyond uh, 20, 30, and 40 kilometers into the Russian rear to go after logistics, to go after the industry, to go after key military infrastructure nodes, which sometimes and often overlap with key industrial nodes in Russia to really slow down sort of the Russian deployment, Russian capability in general. Sam, always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks very much and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Vago. And a quick word from our sponsors, Bell Sponsors, our daily podcast. 
HII sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. And joining us now is my good friend Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners with a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. Byron, I hope you guys had a terrific weekend and welcome back. We did. It was a lovely fall weekend. Uh, And uh, you're sounding uh, much better than you did last week, so I'm glad you're feeling better. (laughs) The the, uh, crisp autumn air certainly helps. Uh, Indeed, up in in sunny uh, Connecticut. Um, So walk us through. I want to get to uh, the Aviation Week conference and George Mason uh, University's terrific industrial-based conference uh, in a moment, but start where you started your great uh, look-ahead note uh, for the week, which was the genesis of this program. and, and how you're gaming uh, what the budget outlook is going to be. Obviously, uh, the 56th Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, uh, has been talking about sort of a staggered, um, you know, looking at different sorts of funding measures and, you know, how a shutdown would potentially play out and, you know, how we can get funding measures till uh, February it's good there are no poison pills in it from uh, a democratic standpoint, but then again, his own caucus, right? Some of the same group who that he was with, who wanted, who voted against uh, uh, extending government funding under Kevin McCarthy, are being active again. How are you gaming how this plays out, given the government runs out of money uh, at midnight on Friday night? Well, I think the first the first thing is the immediate drama over the shutdown, Vago, and you know we talked about our Capital Alpha partners. I think. There isn't a strong house view. It's probably a coin toss at this point in time. My own personal view, it should be irrelevant for defense fundamentals because if you have a funding lapse that starts on November 18th and maybe runs through Thanksgiving, uh, you know, Congress is back on the 28th and 29th. And this is an interesting time because there's a federal pay period on um, November 15th. And then the next date is November 30th. And as much as Congress can sometimes, you know, be crazy and walk us right up to the cliff and maybe jump over, I I just I think it'd be unfathomable that they would actually think about missing a military and federal civil service pay date in its entirety by November 30th. So I wouldn't be surprised if we have a, a short shutdown that lasts over Thanksgiving. There was someone there was a press report uh, this morning and I said, well, you know, that's kind of interesting because that also overlaps one of the heaviest travel periods of the year. And that might create some additional chaos that uh, that kind of compels Congress to avoid a shutdown and getting some sort of short-term CR done. But stepping back, <clears throat> you know, look, I've had odds, the, the prior odds have been 45% that um, we'd get a federal budget done that was kind of in line with the administration request for FY24 and the DOD budget, plus the supplemental requests. There was another 45% that, you know, was a less than optimal outcome. In fact, I think a fairly negative outcome, which is you get slivers of the supplementals done and you'd see this full year CR scenario kick in with some anomalies, but you'd still see a cut in FY24 spending um, just based on on the language in the Fiscal Responsibility Act that would drop it to 99% of the FY23 level. And then there was a 10% probability that you actually see an increase in spending 
you know, above and beyond the base budget request. And then, and then obviously the additional 106 billion, maybe even more for supplemental spending requests. I kind of sat back and, you know, just reviewing what happened last week, you know, the fact that we're now dropping um, the, the emergency supplemental requests from any of these CRs, uh, the fact that the house could not move this transportation, housing, urban development appropriations bill, um, you know, and it just, to me, you know, you sit back and say, well, well, that does not bode well for timely appropriations. And, and great, if we extend this to January or February, you know, there are still some very large differences between what the House has marked appropriations bills and where the Senate is likely to mark these. I, I don't see where the rhetoric is to close those. So, I raised the probability of this full year CR scenario to 50%, drop the um, you know, appropriations at the administration request plus the the full supplementals to 40% and just left the 10% as kind of a Hail Mary that I suppose could happen depending on what happens globally. But um we'll see. You know, I, I mean it could change in January or February, but but last week's um events and posturing did not leave me more optimistic there is a quick and simple solution here to the fy24 appropriations bills and um give the audience a sense right i mean one of the problems whether it was with sequestration or whether it was is with crs or anything else from the standpoint right the department sort of makes it work right so when it's a the sky's gonna fall the Sky doesn't necessarily fall, right? The department still manages to operate responsibly enough that the sky doesn't fall, even if there's an impact, right? I mean, from your standpoint as a longtime observer, what is the actual material impact of all this stupidity aside from moving away from regular order? Because there is an impact, even if that impact is being mitigated by the hard efforts and hard work of a lot of folks, whether his name is Mike McCord or Frank Kendall or Lloyd Austin. And I think, Vago, you know, you're going to hear a loud clanging sound from Washington, D.C. this week, uh, which is basically DOD leadership, you know, trying to make the case that you don't want to go down these routes. Um, Secretary of the Air Force Kendall speaks today at, at Center for New American Security. There's a political defense summit where he speaks and then uh uh, the Deputy Secretary of Defense, Kathleen Hicks, speaks as well as other DOD congressional leadership tomorrow. And then on Wednesday, Mike McCord, the DOD comptroller, is keynoting the Professional Services Council federal uh, market forecast. So I'd expect all those individuals to again state, you know, just how disruptive, <clears throat> put aside the federal shutdown. I mean, that's an obvious one. But the longer you drag out the CR issue, you know, new program starts, rate increases, um, just money that's stranded in different accounts that needs to be moved around, um, you know, it, it just creates a bigger and bigger headache for the department. And I do think, you know, it's the, the department manages as best as it can. But look, it's it's suboptimal. It's wasteful. Um, you know, and this, you know, th then put aside just the Ukraine situation, uh, you know, there's a statement last week, I think that DOD or the administration's down to about $1.1 billion in, in aid left. I mean, that's another situation that could really go badly wrong, um, depending on what Russia is able to do this, this uh, 
this winter with um, particularly their drone and missile strikes. And I think what's probably going to be a pretty pressing need for Ukraine and interceptors to deal with that threat. Um, Do you, um, um, are you confident that that, uh, right? I mean, uh, and we'll hear from uh, Michael uh, Hurston on Friday's uh, show. He's a regular, obviously, on the Washington Roundtable from American Defense International. Um, you know, there, there has been a degree of confidence that that supplemental aid will be made available. Are, are you comfortable it will, or is this something that becomes, not, you know, and is already a political football. I'm not just because, I mean, the simple fact that you're not talking about supplemental, that you're not talking about continuing resolutions, continuing resolutions that strip out that supplemental aid package. Um, you know, Michael talked about, uh, you know, kind of a an alternative view that, you know, the way the administration had presented this was incorrect, you know, that this should have been sliced and diced. I don't know. I just think slicing and dicing it, you know, the problem is then you're then you're running into separate lots of separate votes. And this is a Congress that is not evidencing its ability to move a lot through through either chamber. So um, so I just think I'm I'm, you know, maybe something will get done, but I would not put a like 80 or 90 percent probability on that number. One of the related issue, Vago, is is the holds that Senator Tuberville has placed on DOD nominations and promotions. I think we're up to, I don't know, 450 or 470 now. Um, there is going to be a rules committee vote this week that uh, might break that. Um, it, you know, it would still have to go to the full Senate and you'd need 60 votes to uh, kind of do an end run around the senator's blockade. But I also thought last week there was kind of an interesting set of um, a press release and a comment that the release came from um, Mike Rogers, the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, who basically was kind of imploring the Senate to pull their conferees together so you could start work on the National Defense Authorization Act. But then you had a comment by uh, the ranking member on that committee, um, Representative Smith, basically saying that, look, you know, if if the things that Tuberville is objecting to about um, abortion, you know, travel and reproductive rights travel, if that somehow gets, uh, you know, the GOP attempts to inject that into the NDA, you are not going to have an NDAA. So uh, that I, I ultimately do think we're going to get an NDAA, but that might slip into January as well. I mean, it's just another setup for a battle. And I know the intent had been to kind of start getting this going on Thanksgiving. So we'll see this week, uh, uh, you know, the Senate really does have to announce their conferees and then we'll see how that flows through. But um, if Tuberville is stymied um, and his blocks are somehow lifted, you know, there is a risk that then this flows into the NDAA and that that's another kind of watch item, at least from my standpoint. Um, let's uh, quickly uh, go to uh, takeaways from uh, the Aviation Week uh, annual uh, conference, uh, as well as uh, the uh, event at George Mason University that uh, was uh, hosted by none other than Jerry McGinn uh, of the Baroni Center. Give us, give us your, um, you know, sort of important takeaways from both of those. Well, they're both interesting and and related. I think, you know, for me, the, the main issue is still a supply network. And how, um, you know, there is a lot of evidence that we're, we're through 
the worst of it. But there's still a lot of stress going on down at the lower kind of third and fourth tiers that we really don't have a lot of visibility on. Um, I think that was kind of an, an interesting sub theme that that came out. Um, there were some really interesting comments about, well, you know, <laughs> Boeing investing $1.8 billion in its St. Louis facility. But, you know, that 50 percent of the workforce there has changed since the pandemic, which is really kind of a stunning number and, and kind of how companies are, are dealing with this. Um, I do think, you know, at both conferences, the PPBE uh, commission members uh, made presentations and, you know, that seems to be making some progress. Um, you know, I thought what was most interesting the takeaways at, at both conferences that seem to be the, the things that. DOD could do that might make um, the work of congressional staffers easy, you know, moving to electronic submissions instead of PDFs, having more uh, frequent consultations. That's all very acceptable. But, you know, that's kind of where the, the pushback then starts to begin when you start talking about, well, let's let's not have, you know, if money hasn't been completely obligated in the military personnel and O&M accounts, you know, there should be a rollover provision. I mean, these more practical things that get back to the span of control that Congress has. Um, CRs are another big one, you know, are there ways that you could you could get some workarounds on, on current rules that are really, they're very disruptive and they're probably disruptive for frankly, no good reason. And uh, give us uh, the audience a sense for uh, what are the events they ought to be paying attention to this week because it is a very busy week. Well, I mentioned, I think the, the main ones were the, you know, the, the appearances by senior DOD leadership at uh, CNAS, CNAS, Politico, CNA, yeah, Politico, the Politico Defense Summit and the, uh, the PSC conference. Um, look, you know, there, there are some other things. Um, CSET at Georgetown is doing an event on the replicator program. They've had some very thoughtful research on that. Um, General Saltzman is speaking at Atlanta Council. There are a couple of events, I think both Atlanta Council and Royal United Service Institute are doing on U.S.-European defense. Um, you know, we have the APEC uh, summit meeting. And, you know, I would hope at least one thing that might come out of that is it's not a big ask, but if you have some restoration of military to military communications between the U.S. and China, um, that might be helpful in at least diffusing, you know, what's been a fairly intense and dangerous set of encounters um, with with uh, Chinese naval vessels and ships and U.S. and allied ships um, and aircraft. So um, that that's a watch item to come out of that meeting uh, later this week. Uh, and uh, would point out the uh, Atlantic Council uh, has its uh, big EU meeting. Uh, that's this uh, week. Uh, as well. And I want to put on the radar screen uh, the Halifax uh, International Security Forum that will be convening in Nova Scotia uh, Friday uh, through uh, Sunday. Uh, and really urge folks to check out the news flow from that as well as uh, the feeds because it's always uh, one of the best uh, conferences on the planet. So Absolutely. put that on everybody's radar screen. Byron, thank you so much. Uh, always a pleasure having you on the program. Really appreciate it and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot, Fargo.